Hello and welcome to Noise in Brief, PR Week UK's fortnightly podcast series, where we discuss the biggest industry news stories from the past week in a bite-sized format. I'm Danny Rogers, the Editor-in-Chief of PR Week, and I'm standing in today for your usual host, Siobhan Holt, because both Siobhan and the UK editor John Harrington are hosting PR Week's Strategic Internal Comms Conference in the city as we speak. By the way, do check out PR Week's impressive annual conference schedule. You know, we've got lots of conferences throughout the year. I hosted PR Measurement Conference last week, for which we got great feedback. In the new year, we've got Pharmacoms. And then, of course, in the spring, we've got our huge PR360 conference in Brighton. So do check out all our events at prweek.com forward slash UK. And we've got a list of all of them on there. Anyway, back to news. And I'm pleased that I'm joined today by PR Week's excellent reporting team, Evie Barrett and Eliza Radu. Right, let's begin by looking at a series of pieces we're running on PR Week at the moment, which look at some of the unsung heroes within the PR industry. Now, these are professionals who don't do classic PR roles, but nevertheless are central to the success of comms teams. Evie, you wrote a piece yesterday, I think, on financial directors. So tell us some of the people that you interviewed on that piece and what struck you about FDs in PR. Well, it seems like a bit of an obvious point, but I really noticed how passionate they are about the comms industry, despite not necessarily having a background in the profession. So most said that they've really appreciated the chance to get to know their business, especially getting involved with agency work beyond the traditional finance functions. So, for example, Cole Coots from City Press, he's been at the agency for eight years. So he joined as an apprentice in 2015 and has climbed the ranks to head of finance. And he now also sits on the agency's leadership team as a director. So he works on wider issues like employee engagement, learning and development and more diverse hiring strategies. And that kind of exemplifies the overall sense I got that the more finance directors are embedded in the business, the better the business will operate. I also spoke to Richard Brett, who is a finance consultant for smaller agencies, and he said that finance people have an important role to play in helping PR pros to understand budgets so that the agency runs as a profitable business. When we asked finance directors for advice to the industry, Taito's Emily Rule gave what I thought was quite a useful response. She said that from a finance view, successful agencies should always hire the right people and take their time rather than rushing to fill gaps. It reminded me of a similar point, actually, that Richard made in regards to finance specialists, pointing out that people in his role aren't billable to clients, so they need to add tangible value and essentially that an agency shouldn't have a full-time finance person until they're big enough to be using them on a daily basis. So something to think about for smaller agencies. Yeah, I think, you know, FDs are clearly crucial in running PR businesses and you know, if you're not running it profitably and efficiently, then your your business is going to suffer, even though they're not classic PR people. So I think that's extremely interesting. And Eliza, I think you looked at a piece on executive and personal assistance. Again, give us some examples. And what struck you about these particular unsung heroes? I feel like executive assistants and personal assistants are individuals who have a diverse range of responsibilities from managing schedules to dealing with technology. What I found particularly fascinating about EAs and PAs is their ability to adapt to changing circumstances. Each day is unique and the people I spoke to mentioned how things can change overnight. These assistants are really skilled organisers who care about their work. 
For example, Headland's Emily Radcliffe is always alert and anticipates the needs of those she serves. Similarly, Emma Vaughan, senior PA at Portland, is another assistant I spoke with. She loves the interactions she has with her partners and really believes in nurturing relationships. I also found it interesting how adaptable these people are and have a variety of skill. Becca Kirby from MSL explained how she's involved in the process from beginning to end and can observe how things come together. While speaking with Becca, she said she feels like a sung hero at MSL, not an unsung hero. She was even likened to a secret weapon within the industry. Right, in other news, coming up at the end of this month, of course, there's COP28, the latest United Nations conference which aims to tackle climate change. And this year, it's being held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, which is a tad controversial for some people. At COP21 in 2015, the world agreed to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade compared with pre-industrial levels by 2050. Now, to remain on target, we know that emissions must be halved by 2030. So we only have another seven years to meet that goal. Evie, now you're a member of the Gen Z generation. Is enough being done on climate change in your view? And is the UAE a good place to host a climate change conference? I think as a member of Gen Z, there are a lot of eyes on us when it comes to solving the climate crisis. Seeing as it's us that will be most affected by the outcome, it feels like there's really a pressure for us to shout about it and take it more seriously than other generations perhaps have in the past. In terms of the UAE hosting the event, I think obviously that's going to cause some controversy and increases the risks for those involved. The PHA group's Helen Salvin told us that she thinks it could distract from the meaning of the event, but in a way I think that the attention might actually help the cause. I liked what Charlie Morrow from Cognito said when contacted for the piece we're working on around this, that actually urgency may outweigh controversy and help get decisions made. Yes, very good point. I mean, for listeners, obviously the reason there is controversial to hold it in the UAE is that it's a, it's an oil region of the world and fossil fuel production is very, very high in that part of the world. They're not known, particularly those countries as being particularly green, sustainable. You know, they have kind of snow domes in the desert and uh, can't be particularly green, can it? So um, I think it is controversial, but as you quite rightly said, maybe the urgency outweighs the controversy in this particular case. So Eliza, you're also a member of Gen Z. How do you feel about all this? I believe that collaborating with big oil companies is not inherently wrong as change has to start somewhere. It's important to note that the UK, which hosted COP in 2021 in Glasgow, is also a significant oil and gas producer itself. Although we can't bring about change overnight, it's crucial to avoid greenwashing, which does more harm than good. While the conference has helped us make substantial progress as a society, it appears to be losing the PR battle. You mean the conference is losing the PR battle? Yes, I believe that trust is an important factor when it comes to COP and people want brands and agencies to be authentic when telling a story. But from what I've seen, people are becoming a little bit disillusioned with COP. Sinead O'Connor, a managing director for A Communications based out in the Middle East, told PR Week that COP presents an opportunity for brands to communicate genuine impact and tell stories of innovation. Yeah, it's um, it's a tough one, this, isn't it? I think our commentators and everything you've said is correct. You know, we've got to avoid greenwashing. I think the big challenge is whether COP feels like a greenwashing event in itself. 
And I think that's going to continue to divide opinion. But hopefully the world can make some progress on this because we really do have to act quickly. In PR Week's podcast last week, we had the comms chief of John Lewis talking about their Christmas campaign. Uh, it was a really great conversation and Gillian Taylor, who's the head of communications for John Lewis, she told us that one newspaper had broken the embargo on the launch of the new John Lewis ad, causing absolute mayhem in the comms team. They had to uh, run around trying to pull it out of the papers and everything. And it, it raised the interesting question of whether embargoes actually work or whether they're more trouble than they're worth. So Evie, as, a, as both a journalist and a observer of the PR industry, what's your view on embargoes generally? I think that from my experience, embargoes do work. Knowing ahead of time that a story's coming out means that I can prepare it properly rather than scrambling to get it written at the last minute, means that I can clarify on certain details if needed and make sure that I do the story justice, really. It helps us when PRs share the news as soon as they're able to, because to me, it shows that they understand how we work and I mean, giving us a heads up when they know they've got an announcement coming is useful. I also think that it helps us share the news as soon as we're allowed to do so. So we know that even if we don't have the exclusive, we'll still be among the first to publish it. In terms of downsides, sometimes I think embargoes aren't labelled clearly enough, which means we could accidentally publish them ahead of time. So it's important for PRs to really emphasise if something's embargoed. I mean, big red text usually does the job. Another danger is if they share the embargoed news too far in advance, so I'd say there's no real need to do it more than a week before the embargo lifts because we can't always think that far in advance and we may end up forgetting to come back to it in certain cases. Yeah, thanks, Evie. That's really um, useful advice and you make some very good points there. I mean, you're currently a reporter. I have I was a reporter a long time ago and um, I must say in my old age, I, I can't stand embargoes personally. I tend to think if you tell a journalist something, you should expect it to be written pretty much immediately. That's kind of how the um, how the news media work. And if you don't want something to be written, don't tell the journalists yet. But I do understand, of course, that they're useful in, in certain situations, particularly, I guess, in something like the John Lewis Christmas campaign, right, mm. where, you know, people need time to prepare all the films and everything. Also, perhaps we should talk about exclusives. So, um, Eliza, presumably it's still good to have an exclusive given to you when you're a journalist, although there's some misunderstanding around exclusives, aren't there? Journalists love exclusives, or at least at PR Week we do. I think it's a great way of building a relationship with a PR. In my experience, the best exclusive are those that involve significant new hires, acquisitions or client wins, because that will capture people's attentions. It's also important to set clear guidelines for when you'd like the story to be published and whether you've given the story out to other outlets. Because you're putting all your marbles in one sack with this approach, it requires some patience. On a few occasions, we've been given an exclusive only to see the story end up on our sister site's page. So it's crucial to have clear communications and expectations. With the rise of digital media, it's also important to get your timing right. Once a story has been published elsewhere, it's no longer newsworthy. Some publications won't even publish the story after a few days or a few weeks since it's been released. Nobody wants to read old news, in my opinion, unless you can bring something new to the table. Well, quiet. We wouldn't write an exclusive, would we, Eve, if it no. was if written somewhere? I think there's a lot of misunderstanding with LinkedIn. Sometimes things get posted on there and then given to us as an exclusive, but... 
nowadays, so many people get their news from LinkedIn that if it's got a hundred or so likes, then it's not really justifiable for us to publish it. There's only one real definition of exclusive, which it hasn't been written anywhere yet, mm. isn't it? That needs to be the exclusive. And I think you make some very good points, Eliza, that you know, exclusives for different niches don't really work because the media are all connected. So if you give an exclusive to somebody in a similar industry, then we'll know about it. Good advice anyway. And finally today, another thing the team's working very hard on is PR Week's decision on the best communicators of 2023, which we always publish in December and we'll do so next month. Now, this is something that recognises 20 great communicators of the past year. Our criteria are that they cannot be professional comms people or journalists, because, of course, communication is their main job. But they are people in other walks of life who show great comms prowess. And for our list, they have to be based in the UK. So, Evie, give us an example of one of the people on our list, on your list. Who do you feel is a real contender for communicator of the year and why? Yeah, someone who's really stood out to me this year is Amy Dowden, the professional dancer from Strictly Come Dancing. So even though she sadly couldn't compete this year after being diagnosed with breast cancer and undergoing treatment in recent months, she's made a real effort to stay in the public eye and keep people up to date on her life. She's largely kept up a positive tone with her Instagram followers, even making appearances on Strictly where she can. But she's also been honest about the less glamorous parts of what she's going through and really just keeping all her fans up to date. I think she's a real contender for top communicator of the year because everyone around her seems to really admire her perseverance and the way she's handling things. Plus, she's serving as a strong role model and hopefully a bit of a comfort for anyone else who's been affected by illness. Yeah, it's a great story, isn't it? She's really um, connected with lots of people. Mm. And she used Strictly, which is a mass market communications medium to uh, you know make that emotional connection so I think she's a great choice. Eliza give us another example perhaps and why that person could be communicator of the year. I'm intrigued by Zoe Cohen who is a spokesperson for Just Stop Oil. It's undeniable that Just Stop Oil has been making headlines this year whether you support their cause or not. I recall her interview with Sky News during which she sat on the floor in protest. While some may find this type of protest irritating she made the valid point that being different and slightly transgressive can help bring attention to their campaign. She emphasised that unless people take such action, ordinary Brits will not likely notice their cause. And I thought that was really important because we've had so much talk about climate change and setting things right, but it's now old news or people have become so desensitised to it that unless something grabs your attention, you're not going to pay attention because there's so much going on in the world. Yeah, Just Stop Oil certainly gave attention to climate change this year. I mean, this summer when they disrupted all of those sporting events and um, and cultural events, it certainly felt like, you know, it was kind of the summer of Just Stop Oil. So I guess in that sense, they're, they're cutting through, right? Mm. Uh, whether or not they're um, making much difference to climate change, I don't know. But I guess their job is simply to push it up the agenda. So those are just two examples of communicators of the year. We are working on many, many more. We've got to decide our final listing. In the meantime, if you, the listener, have any suggestions for who you think Communicator of the Year should be, do contact us at PR Week and let us know your views because we're, we're weighing up the pros and cons now and trying to get to our final list. So uh, anyway, you can look forward to reading about all of that 
in December. Well, that's great. And that's all for this week's podcast. Noise in Brief goes live every two weeks, but look out for our longer interview-based podcast, Beyond the Noise, which comes out next week. Thank you so much to our reporters, Evie and Eliza. And do check out prweek.com forward slash UK for all the latest news. And as mentioned at the beginning, all our great events that we run too. And thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in. Hope to meet you again very soon. Goodbye.